Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is James Harding. Uh, I'm the editor and, um, uh, and founder of a new news company called Tortoise. But in previous lives, uh, Bronwyn and I have uh, worked together both at the Financial Times and then the Times. Um, and until last year, I was running uh, BBC News. And um, I was taught at BBC News that the, 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 the greatest sin would be to read the prepared remarks in a two-way. Let's say, for example, a political editor was about to go on air and say, it seems to me that the Brexiteers have blinked. And then introduce the speaker by saying, so I hear, Bronwyn, that the Brexiteers have blinked. <laughs> I'm in the dubious position of actually having already seen the speech. So I could obviously spike Bronwyn's guns by saying, it seems to me, Bronwyn, that X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. The thing I need to tell you is that having read it, some of you are in for a disappointment because if, like me, you have come to hear Bronwyn's voluminous wisdom on the subject of K-pop and, uh, oh, and the music <laughs> of South Korea, you're going to get little. But if you are also have a passing interest in the role of government at arguably one of the testing, most testing times in our history, you are going to get food for thought. Um, I left uh, the BBC having spent many months in the newsroom saying Brexit is the sixth most interesting thing happening in this country. That we face challenges from technology, we face challenges from the hundred year life, from finance, from our new identity politics, from the dual challenges of energy and the environment. You will find that Bronwyn gives us a chance to think deeply about those. And once Bronwyn has um, uh, finished giving her speech, I'm in the happy position of introducing Sir Amos Morse. Uh, Amos is going to speak for a few minutes, and then uh, it's my uh, difficult task to try and wrangle a conversation between the three of us and all of you. So uh, wish us luck, and over to you, Bronwyn. James, thank you very much indeed. And Amias, in advance for the discussion we're going to have, the NEO has done a lot of work on the things that I'm going to talk about. Well done to all of you who've managed to get through the taxi demonstration, which I gather has left the Brexit ones in, a, in the shade. The past year hasn't been a good advertisement for government, nor has the past 24 hours, you might say. Walking into meetings in Washington recently, ahead of a big debate that we held at the British Embassy, the opening gambit was always, this government is more... We're glad that the US President and Capitol Hill are agreed that it's worth having a federal government, at least for another three weeks. The UK, though, continues to spin out the paralysis that has fascinated and horrified the world. In voting to send the Prime Minister back to Brussels to ask for something that Brussels has repeatedly rejected, this is before you consider the economic hit that most models predict. This is the slide. You don't need to squint, but I'll tell you the, the, the key points in it. This is the slide showing the time that uh, government generally takes to prepare for big changes. Yeah. 12 years for automatic enrollment into pensions at the top, about the same for the Olympics, 11 years for universal <laughs> credit, for universal credit, and as we know, that is just, in a sense, getting going. More than five years, this is an important one, more than five years for the Customs Declaration Service, which sounds wildly technical, but that is a new digital system of customs, 
uh, customs forms the companies have to complete if they're going to export or import something and they're subject to that regulation. And that would be just part, really, of the, uh, the kind of change coming with Brexit. And while I'm talking now about no deal, you can see if we put on this that even if the UK strikes a deal with the EU and so has a transition period, that is still really short. The dark red bit is very, very short, and the possible extension, which is slightly lighter, is still not very long indeed. And if there were to be no deal, there are lots of things for which the UK is still not prepared. The IFG has a, a list, which does not really get shorter. Here are some of them pictured. So on there, the government has still not spelled out some of the most important measures that it would take. For instance, what tariffs it would charge on imports from the EU, whether it would waive them. None of the 40-odd EU trade agreements which the UK would lose access to have been rolled over, although there are a few agreements in principle. The government's going to have to pass at least five more bills, while 500 out of the necessary 600 statutory instruments are still outstanding. The UK needs to set up replacements for the work done by the EU to pick just one of many, many of these. That means creating a license for European banks to keep trading in the UK. Business is going to do, make all kinds of preparations. They would need to fill out new customs declarations, change labels on food, get health checks for exports that involve <coughs> animal products. And in all this, the civil service preparation for no deal certainly has not been nothing. It's been quite a bit, but it has been very much in fits and starts. It's been slowing down when negotiations were going well, as in March uh, when, uh, last year when a transition was agreed in principle. And it's been speeding up when things got stuck, as at the end of last year. But it hasn't been, you can't call it, a steady preparation for no deal. The EU has offered us some cushions against the disruption, these temporary ones, particularly on flights and financial services. But as John Manzoni, chief executive of the civil service, said on this platform not very long ago, we won't be completely prepared for no deal. Why is the UK in such a predicament now? It was not inevitable. Even if these political decisions, these political divisions, forgive me, on Europe go back decades, the government must bear a lot of responsibility. That starts with its early declaration of Article 50 and setting of red lines without considering whether they might make a majority in Parliament impossible. It persisted with that position even when it lost its majority in the 2017 general election. It pursued a position that the EU had ruled out, that is, retaining the benefits of membership while leaving the EU, failing to understand with enough gravity, really, that the EU saw Brexit as a threat to its entire survival. And there was always a, also a failure to appreciate the importance of the Irish border early enough on. For its part, the civil service has taken tremendous steps in preparing for Brexit, and it's had to plan for several parallel versions of the future at the same time. It's hired lots of people, 20,000, since the referendum. That reverses one in five of the job cuts of recent years, and it's put half of those people immediately to work on Brexit, maybe another 5,000 to come. Generation Brex, as Gavin Freegard, author of our report, calls them. But there will be questions with hindsight about how the civil service advised the prime minister and ministers. The first is not, answer, is not understanding the EU well enough. 
there has, it seems to me, been a real loss of European expertise over the years. By that I mean diplomats who knew what other European capitals were really thinking and how they were going to respond to this. Some of that's due to the pairing away of the Foreign Office budget and the pairing away of its role within Whitehall. The Iraq and Afghan wars contributed, though, I think. They really diverted attention from European questions. I remember back in those years, riding back in a minister's plane from Kabul and Baghdad, and we all had thrown our flak jackets into the hold, and I said to one very senior civil servant, what's happened to all your colleagues then in the nice suits getting on the Eurostar to Brussels? And there was a shrug, not of disdain, but of utter lack of interest in the whole adrenaline of the war zones. The second question that I think we have to ask about civil service advice is whether, far from saying no Prime Minister, senior officials indulge Theresa May too much in pursuit of what it's now fashionable to call unicorns. For instance, the notion that technology not yet designed could easily, dissolve, uh, easily solve the Irish border. That unicorn started prancing all over Parliament Square again last night. If you put this to senior civil servants, they do offer a riposte. They say, for one, that we did advise the Prime Minister not to trigger Article 50 at that point. They clearly have a case that she was trying to bridge deep political divisions, and they were trying to find solutions. But the results are still regrettable. One senior civil servant said to me, we really didn't think there was a solution to coming out of the customs union without border checks, but we were under a lot of pressure to give one. So we finally did something, really, on the back of a fag packet, and we sent it over. Tell me, just you tell me, how that became plan A. However, Brexit has been good for Parliament. Parliament has become better at holding government to account, something that, in general, we at the IFG very much support. That is, though, after a week's start. Parliament passed the Article 50 bill without asking enough questions, accepting Theresa May's position that her red lines set the parameters of a deal. MPs must share the blame for the failure to have arguments over where Brexit was going to end up early on enough. Parliament has now made up for that, to the point where there are concerns that it's ripping up conventions so fast that the UK will become ungovernable. Here's a list of all the conventions that are in play, in flux, if you like. Lots of them uh, illustrated in a kind of laconic pictorial shorthand. You might add to these, though, the convention that the government would resign if losing a vote on its main policy, or indeed the convention that MPs would observe a three-line whip. Let me pick one from this list that is causing much, much concern in Whitehall right now, top right, the humble address. Words, words many people would not have been fluent in just, uh, just uh, months ago. The government and senior officials have been rattled by Labour's use of the antique device of the humble address, nominally to the monarch, but really to the government, to extract legal advice, to force it to be published. And the government is worried it now has no recourse, as it does under statutes like the Freedom of Information Act or the Public Records Act, to protect it from having to publish legal advice or notes of private meetings. And the government is right to worry that at this moment it doesn't, or may not. But this wouldn't be a useful tool against a government with a majority. That's right. That is one example of how we shouldn't worry too much about the apparent fluidity of conventions at the moment. 
because much of it that stems from the really highly unusual circumstances that we see at the moment. There's a minority government whose own party is divided on the subject of the day, supported by a small party whose identity rests on the single most contentious issue of the whole business, while the opposition is also divided. We should instead welcome much of the growing strength of Parliament, which actually predates Brexit. The 2010 change to let MPs elect com select committee chairs, who were previously picked by whips, really strengthened the committees enormously. And that has been really welcome, in our view, as we argued in our new annual report called Parliamentary Monitor. The inability of government and parliament to deal with anything but Brexit comes at a really significant cost. Since the 2017 general election, not counting reshuffles, 22 ministers have resigned from government, six from the department for exiting the EU, eight of them cabinet ministers. That on its own has disrupted the normal running of government. Here's the IFG list of the work not done or delayed because of Brexit. Lots of it. Copies available afterwards. We did get, at least, if late, the immigration white paper and the NHS uh, reform plan in the far left column. But important work on the funding of local government and the police, both under real strain, that's been held up. So is work on social housing. And the spending review, really due to begin right now, is slipping later. So, I should say, has work on devolution and Brexit has badly strained the agreement on how that works and the relationships with Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast as the IFG is going to explore this summer in a report on 20 years of devolution, what should we make of it? The point I'm making is that these delays are a real cost. Let's leave Brexit. Come on to my next thing, government finances and public spending. This is one of the big biggest areas of our work precisely because the challenge for government is so great. And the UK really isn't alone in this. The problem is how to deliver public services that meet people's expectations, given that there's an aging population, there are rising costs of healthcare technology, and national finances are still running a deficit, even if less so. The Office for Budget Responsibility has shown how that in a few years, taxes will have to rise sharply just to keep providing the public services that we've got now, never mind adding more to them. So there's that gap, which doesn't look that dramatic, but that gap in 2067, right at the right of the slide, that is 8.6% uh, of GDP, equivalent to 182 billion pounds at today's prices. As the OBR says, laconically, something is going to have to give. Meanwhile, the UK, like many countries, finds it hard to levy and collect, uh, collect taxes systematically. We're doing some work on all these points. We're launching a new program of work looking at the difficulties with the current tax system and why reform has proved elusive. Taxes are piled up in sedimentary layers, if you like, shaped by political forces, and society is changing ways that make these out of date, such as more self-employment, or very patchy in their application, as we can see with corporation tax, or riddled with unwanted effects, as we see with property taxes. So we're looking at that. We've also got a big project on the Treasury, and the first report in that program just out was on how the government should run the 2019 spending review. Our report makes one central point, other, other than that this review needs to take place. The Treasury should focus more on the performance of departments. 
what they achieve and their efficiency, not just issuing them with a number every year and telling them that's what you can spend and then coming back a year later to see whether they've met it. Our performance tracker, one of our most prominent publications, does this in a way that the Treasury doesn't exactly. It looks at money going into public services and then what they do with it. It does show that these services have made great strides in efficiency, often while keeping standards the same since the budget squeeze began in 2010. But it also shows where there are areas of lots of concern given the budget pressures and the demands on these services. And we have these multicolored chart here. These are concern ratings we've attached to key services. And again, to save you squinting, um, but the two the kind of long vertical blocks of, of red, which is adult social care and prisons, where the strain is really showing. And schools kind of hovering in the middle has much more green uh, and yellow attached to it uh, so far, um, so far comparatively uh, untouched by this. UK government is traditionally very good at sticking within these spending limits thanks to the Treasury's work. This is the Treasury, for those of you who don't live in Whitehall. <laughs> not, not, not the nuclear plutonium plant of North Korea to which it bears a, cer a certain aerial resemblance. But the Treasury has found the management of performance hard. Michael Barber is now leading the sixth review since the Thatcher years of how to try to get more incentives for efficiency into the system. There are several problems in our view that get in the way of this. They begin with lack of data. Government too often lacks the figures to know how departments are performing or to judge value for money. And the patchiness of that data, internally to government, not just what is published, continues to be a real shocker. For example, subsidiaries of companies dealing with the government, for example, Carillion, are given a different code in government accounts from the parent company. So it's really hard, even for those in government, to work out what their total exposure to a company is, let alone in the scramble if a company suddenly begins going down. Parliamentary teams who scrutinize government accounts really tear their hair out of this. They say to us that, look, if a new minister comes along and, for instance, wants to badge everything as the green economy, that destroys the categories that make comparison from one year to another possible. We're very much in favor of something very technical called the single departmental plans. These are supposed to be business plans for each department. But as devised, not for that long ago, they had way too many priorities per department. And success in many of these can't be quantified. In fact, in the case of the Foreign Office, none at all. And we find the arguments for not publishing these really unconvincing, particularly the claim, much repeated, that there's just too much data in too raw a form for the outside world to be able to understand. That's why we're here. So bring it on. What is more, there is often little incentive to become more efficient. Civil servants are judged by how big a team they lead, not on how lean it is. Departments are judged by how much money they can get off the Treasury in these spending reviews, not by how well they use it. And one big battle of ideas within this whole discussion of public spending is, is growing over outsourcing, the use of the private sector to deliver government services and construction. And the collapse of Carillion thrust this very <coughs> technical sounding thing right into the, uh, the evening news bulletins. Procurement currently amounts to a third of public spending, and it has for many years after growing steeply in the 1980s and 1990s. 
And what that shows, and it hits the axis at about between 30 and 40%, sliding up towards 40%, this is too big to get rid of. Even though you hear some voices in Parliament saying, look, oh, get, rid of, get rid of it all. No, you, you, you can't. This is the way that Britain does government now. We've got a big project underway on what has worked well and what hasn't. Again, lack of good figures prevents the government giving a clear answer in many cases to whether outsourcing is actually delivering better value than what it, follow, than what it followed when those things were provided by the government. But there is quite a lot of anecdotal evidence or patchy evidence that some does work well. So again, this is about managing it better. One of the problems is the government hasn't always outsourced the right things. And one condition of several for outsourcing to work well is that there should be a market in the suppliers that they're competing to offer this to government. And government has got much better, uh, we're, we're absolutely the first to say, in writing the contracts that secure savings for the public. But it hasn't given enough attention, particularly in recent years, to the health of those markets to supply the services or undertake construction or whatever. The number of companies willing to bid is falling, sometimes to a sole bidder. Companies say it's because the margins are now terrible and they can't make money. The government's management of these contracts can also be weak. That was part of the problem. It's now beginning to be very clear with Carillion. The people writing the contract did uh, a good job for government and then less so when it was passed over to other teams to manage it. You sometimes find a coyness among officials about asking private companies to explain their financial position. And they're quite often put off by the repast, well, look, this is market-sensitive information. We can't hand it over. Sometimes what I think is a naive attitude to a risk, thinking that because the work has been transferred, the risk has too. In reality, the responsibility of providing public services is always going to fall back on the government. There is risk that cannot be outsourced. These are not reasons for out avoiding outsourcing, as I said before, just for doing it better. Come on to the people, the third bit. The final category I want to talk about today, professional skills of politicians and civil service. The IFG does a lot of work on this in public, but actually even more in private. Lots of dedicated people go into politics and government. They often have many options for fulfilling, distinguished, very lucrative careers elsewhere. However, being a minister is unlike pretty well any other job. You get no preparation for it, no training. You have no idea how long you might be in it, but you know it, that might not be very long at all. We run private induction groups for new ministers where we set out our top tips, if you like, and they get a chance to fire questions at the cabinet secretary and they're very popular. We run gatherings for what you might call wannabe ministers. Um, there's one in the Speaker's house, uh, Jack Straw and Ken Clark um, are pining to a big audience. And we also run one-to-one -one sessions with ministers and discussions on preparing government, uh, preparing for government with the opposition. And we do that work with the opposition at times when an election might be in the offing for the avoidance of doubt, as lawyers say, we are in such a time now. On the civil service side, we do private work with them on policy making. Our recent focus, though, has been on one particular subject, the unhealthy degree of staff turnover within the civil service. And this month, we published a big study on this. The problem isn't that people are leaving the civil service. Actually, they're not in great numbers, much less than you'd get from a typical company but they move around a lot between departments and then they move around between different jobs within the departments. 
a quarter of the people in the Treasury move every year, we found. It's rare for the head of a spending review team to be there for the next review, even though that's just three years later. These blobs, um, the blue ones at the bottom are the whole department, and then the pink ones bouncing on top are the senior civil service, and then it's by, by department. But what it shows is that um, almost up to half of the senior civil service, and that's in the cabinet office at the end, are moving um, uh, within, within a year. And we've got very high rates of the senior civil service moving, and uh, less of, of, of the departments, but then, as I said, a lot of those people work out in the field, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect that as much. Um, and that's just leaving the department. That isn't leaving projects within the department, which adds uh, a layer of instability on top. Some of this merry-go-round is caused by Brexit, but it really is an old problem. And pay and promotion schemes are set up to reward those who move job and not those who stay put. The principle of open competition for all jobs undermines managers' ability to keep their team in place. A minister in post for two years might well find that he or she knew more than the civil service team assigned to them. This prevents those teams building up knowledge and skills. We have supported at the IFG for a long time the drive for more specialist skills in the civil service, particularly in finance and particularly in those who write commercial contracts with companies. It remains shocking, to us at least, that this is an argument that has to be made again and again, that people working in government finance or accounts need skills in those subjects. Bright generalists are not enough. Yet I should also end by emphasizing that the civil service has many extremely talented and committed people in it. And they're committed, this is an important point, they're committed to its independence and its neutrality. There are some opposition voices who fear that the civil service is stuffed with people who are captured by neoliberal thinking, the thinking of recent decades, and would try to thwart a radical new government. That's unfair and unnecessary angst. If you look back at the past few decades, the civil service has delivered astonishing changes of direction. Brexit is the latest. So our work. These are the core pillars of our work, ministers, civil service, parliament, public services, policy making and public finances. And we've chosen these because these are, in our view, among the biggest challenges that government faces in the UK and beyond. Brexit of its own kind with its own lurid colour, smaller programmes on which we're very active and want people to know it, devolution, outsourcing, digital government and public inquiries and accountability and professional development more discreetly in the corner there, but we do a lot of it. In conclusion, Brexit did not erupt out of nowhere, nor did the level of dissatisfaction and mistrust in government that many voters express. Those came out of political leaders' failure to make a case for the value of government to the whole of the country, not just part. Not everything is gloom, although it can seem that way if you spend your days talking about government and politics. There's huge excitement in science, in medicine, in technology, artificial intelligence. That's where you run into people saying, I am so glad to be in this work at this time. I can't believe my luck, as one senior person in the NHS said to me. It wasn't about the management stuff. It was about the excitement of the changes in medicine going on at the moment. And we are, in many ways, living through an extraordinary rev revolution that is changing people's lives right across the planet. But we're also at a time when it is hard or even impossible 
for governments to deliver everything that people have come to expect. Indeed, some of the reasons why it is a hard time to run a country really stem precisely from the speed of that technological change. So the challenge for political leaders is to capture the benefits of that creative revolution in ways that benefit people across society and to reinforce people's belief in government, not their skepticism. That's a test of political skill, of leadership, and skill in running a government, something that we in the Institute think can be studied and can be improved. The questions on which we work here at the Institute for Government matter for public faith that government can work well. Thank you very much. Bromley, thank you so much. Um, not just for the thoroughness um, of the analysis as ever, but also for the candour. Uh, at, at such a highly political time, actually, it's refreshing to get sort of such a clear view on the state of our politics, the state of our leaders, and the state of our government. Um, uh, someone who has had a clear eye on those things for a few years now, um, Sir Amos Morse, um, it struck me sitting here next to you that almost the whole of the auditing business is having a, um, a crisis of public trust. The big four have their problems. The big one, the NAO, actually is in a different position. It's been uh, regarded for its vigor and its rigor under your leadership, and you're in a position now, uh, as you come to the exit in the summer, to be able to reflect on, I suppose, both Brexit and its impact on government, but also more broadly the conduct of our government and the public finances. So can I hand over to you, tell us how you see things for a few minutes and then we'll launch into a conversation on, on Broman's comments. Okay, thanks very much. I'm a Scottish Chartered Accountant. So as regards the next few months until my exit, I'm primarily concerned to avoid a banana skin. <laughs> um, a few things that occurred to me, I thought it was a brilliant talk by the way, uh, I'm not just saying that because you're paying me. Um, <laughs> um, I, let me start with Brexit. Uh, I, I can't pass that by. And our work in the NAO has been designed to eliminate the practical consequences of the various primary scenarios of Brexit. So people weren't kidding themselves in Parliament and they were well informed about what the likely practical results would be. That's why we published into the teens of reports on Brexit. Many of them just briefings, because we, we felt there was a vacuum of understanding, and it's filled up a, bi a bit. Uh, interestingly, I also thought, think there was very vigorous upward management of news flow within government. And it was discernible to me that quite late on, someone who was putting a deck of slides in front of uh, number 10, and talking about some of the practical difficulties of getting things done in very short order, was told that they were toxic slides. But they weren't, they were just the facts. So I think we need to understand, it took us a long time to get going, and there wasn't much appetite for transparency. In fact, there was a very big press to avoid information being exchanged or made available. And Mostly, I can understand the argument that said there might be negotiations going on, we don't want to give our hand away, but do they really imagine people in Europe know so little about an organiser, a, a country they've been close to for the last 40 odd years? I, I just thought that was uh, very overdone. Very overdone and somewhat damaging, actually. Uh, 
However, I can't move on from this without paying tribute to the civil service who are putting everything into preparing as, as well as they can. It's definitely Dunkirk spirit, very uh, adaptable, now adaptable, now moving fast. I'm, I'm impressed and I, I can't, I can't uh, go past without saying that. Let me talk a little bit about tax. Um, we've got a real problem in tax. We're going to be doing a report, we too are going to be doing a report on um, the tax gap. Because if you read the HMRC's uh, last set of accounts, you'll see that they estimate the, tax, the difference between the taxing gathered and what should be there at 33 billion. That's quite a nice number. Uh, so perhaps there should be some more vigorous inquiry as to how, at what rate if at all, can that gap uh, be, 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 be crossed? Uh, but if it's going to be crossed, it needs to be crossed in a way that obviously gets, gets you through the political um, process. Because I've noticed that there have been a lot of tax raising proposals which have virtually all died at the first fence of political acceptability. Now you can't have it both ways. We need to have a frank conversation about the need for more income through the tax system. Uh, so, I, I think that's. I think. I think it's. It's just not good enough to not be clear. We're not going to be all right. We. We need to plan long term for our major services. We need to invest long term in them if we're going to get good value out of the money spent. And that can't be done if you're permanently in a position where you don't have enough money and you're cutting here and there to try and make the overall box balance. That doesn't. That doesn't work, and it actually destroys public value. And that's why we were very pleased to publish a report recently on improving planning and the role of Treasury in planning and the, the importance of planning between the Cabinet Office and Treasury. And what we, what we want is for planning both medium term and short term and then in the year operational planning to be taken really seriously, good quality data, and with the only viable enforcement agency available, which is the Treasury, with their spending teams repurposed so they're not just bright young things, though they're definitely very bright, but also with more experience added as to what value really is and what real business practice is. So they can challenge unrealistic, optimistic projects that are being put into the system, which I see every day. That is also damaging and we need to, the only body that can really challenge that and that can when, when, they, when they push optimism bias out the door, it comes in through the cat flap. The only people who can kick it right back out again are Treasury spending teams. And they need to accept that responsibility. And we'll certainly nag on about it until, until they do. Uh, very quickly, uh, on outsourcing, I see so many examples where people don't understand the dynamics of the businesses they're contracting with and they absolutely foolishly transfer risk to them that they can't that they cannot manage and it's not right to make them responsible for it it's not clever to transfer all the risk to an outsourcing partner that is actually not good management it destroys value and we, we you know we're we're absolutely seeing that again and again so i'd strongly urge that a more realistic and insightful view of trading partners is needed if we're going to continue and i'm sure we will with a lot of outsourced, uh, outsourced uh, government activity. Just finally on people, 
It's been interesting looking over a wide range of major projects and reporting on them in the last year. What, I, what I've seen is project teams developing a bunker mentality. And this is in part, it ties in with your comment, Bronwyn, about too much turnover of senior grades. If you don't have senior people watching those project teams close enough to know what they should be doing and close enough to know when they're developing a little bit of a paranoid tendency and able to challenge that, then we're going to continue. And I saw examples of it. I, I saw examples of it in the work that we did on Windrush. Just not listening and not think, not empathising at all with the people that they were dealing with, not thinking through the consequences of enforcement, and I've seen it in smart meters and and in others. It's it really isn't. It's understandable that there should be team spirit, but it needs to be set off by a cool, appraising, and adjusting voice from somewhere quite nearby, but not engulfed in the enthusiastic tide. So I think that's. That's uh, really important, and I think with those, let me, let me stop and let's start the conversation. Uh, Amy, thank you very much. We're, we're going to have a conversation for 10 minutes or so, and then I hope to get as many questions as comments as we can um, um, uh, after that. Bronwyn, can I just start, though I find myself in this odd uh, position, you don't normally look to the journalists to come to the defence of ministers and civil servants, but, but I suppose when I heard what you said right at the start about the idea that Brexit has been a catastrophe for government, you know, I think a lot of people here would have reflected when Jeremy Hayward died on the quality of, of people such as him and also on the quality of the work that civil servants do. And there are people who look at the job the government has undertaken in trying to deliver Brexit that says actually it's been an extraordinary feat of bureaucracy. It's been, it's been nimble in terms of the number of people it's recruited. Intellectually, it's sought to try and navigate an impossible path. It's come up with a plan that is no small achievement. I think that's exactly right. But you're talking there mainly about the, um, mainly about the civil service, which I think has been pretty phenomenal on this. I mean, in a way, in, in, you know, in, in, in shorter than three years, to try to rewrite uh, not, ju uh, not just our relationship with the EU, but to, s to scope out many different versions of this is, you know, essentially something that couldn't, couldn't be done in, in that time. And any one bit of that is immensely complex. And I think they've done that. And as Jeremy Haywood himself very much did, conscious of having to run these parallel mm. worlds at the same time has been an incredible strain. Um, I still think in that though that the trickiest area in this and the one that we will go back in hindsight to look at is, is, is inevitably about the political decisions that are taken and about the um, advice to the extent the civil service gave uh, advice on those options. And when I said catastrophe of government, it was particularly about the uh, sequence of decisions taken at the beginning that uh, has brought us uh, seemingly inevitably, but not really inevitably, I'm saying, to the point where we now are. And, and can I just ask, I was really struck by the slide uh, at the end about turnover of people, mm. in, particularly in something like the Cabinet Office. I mean, Brian, both you and Amy, one of the things that's really hard to judge from the outside is whether or not the institutions of government and how they relate to each other have fundamentally changed, whether or not where the power lies in government, where the decision makers sit in government, whether that has fundamentally changed as a result of Brexit. This is really interesting because I think we will look back and think that Brexit has changed subtly sort of everything. Um, 
including devolution, but it's it's really changed Whitehall, and I don't mean just the, the you know squads of people working directly on it. It has changed those relationships. Some of that's been actually quite positive. Suddenly, uh, this Amy's uh, saying this sort of Dunkirk spirit of everyone uh, swarming together to try and coming from different departments all on the, onto yeah. the same thing, and there has been a sort of adrenaline and a. Uh, attempt to you know people to throw their energies into this, um, but it um, you know again and again they've come up against the fact that there, there wasn't a single clear destination to to go to. Power uh, power has uh, is still flowing around uh, the whole of uh, Westminster and Whitehall as we as, as we speak, and is now sort of uh, you know at the moment. Um, sitting in the Chamber of the House of Commons. Because I thought that point about Parliament and government was really clearly made. I guess within government, I mean, Amy, I'd like to come on to this point about tax, but is the Treasury much changed as a result of Brexit, and is its relationship with, with, with the Cabinet, with Downing Street, with the Prime Minister much changed, do you think? Well, I think... Uh, all of these departments are, and particularly the Treasury, is probably quite significantly affected by who's leading it. Yes. Uh, and in, in, in the case of Tom Scholar, a renowned European expert, and therefore it'd be very odd if he wasn't quite involved in, in, in discussion about the direction to, to go, and I'm quite sure he is. And equally, it's probably um, quite affected by how the Chancellor views these things, I would think, wouldn't you? I guess, I guess what I'm trying to, so I don't know, but I'll tell you what I look at. Is yeah. I look, it seems as though if you look at the period between 2000, the post-financial crisis period, it seemed as though the Treasury had reasserted itself as by far and away the most decisive uh, um, institution in government, often more so than even number 10. I, in this process, it's been very unclear the extent of its influence, and it seemed much lessened. But I think that depends on what's going on. I mean... Treasury was very decisive in dealing with the, the financial settlement, how that was going to be put together in negotiating uh, that, the, the withdrawal agreements and so forth. So they clearly had a big role there. And when we're dealing with primarily financial negotiations, I'm sure, sure they will again. But an awful lot of what's been going on hasn't been about that. So if you like, that's not been at the front of the agenda for quite mm -hmm. some time. And I think if you go further, I'm minded to stretch us out. Supposing there is a, an agreement uh, and we find ourselves with a constant background of trade negotiations, a massive, a massive effort in trying to create trade, trade negotiations with just about everywhere in the, in the world in one go. Again, where the battlefront of government effort is, is going to be different, mm. and I yeah. think so. Well, I think that will right, draw yeah. power with yeah. it. I mean, it's funny when people say the Treasury is the most powerful department. Obviously, it is in a sense, and that it turns, yeah. turns on <laughs> and off the money, uh, and, and other departments want it. But in some ways, I mean, it's you know, it's, it's small in terms of number of people compared to some of those mm. departments, and yeah. it, uh, you know, it does depend what is going on after the financial crisis. Absolutely, it wrote the script. Uh, for, the, for the UK government and for, for public services for years to come, and that's still with us. And then, you know, as George Osborne, his later years as Chancellor, began to get into his stride on Northern Powerhouse and mm. investment, and it led to all kinds of investment decisions, even though some of them, the Hinkley one I have uh, written many times about, thinking too expensive, but anyway, it began to do that. Brexit um, seemed to me is, presented the Treasury with some problems. First place, you know, it, 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 the, the economic argument was rejected 
uh, by the result of the referendum, that, that this would be an economic hit. And I think the Treasury, in a sense, has been a bit on the back foot because of that. And yeah. so this has been very much a political um, discussion with Parliament and then with, uh, with Brussels. And economics is certainly there, but you can't say it's the loudest note in all that. Can, can, can we just look forward to a time in the future when we're not talking about Brexit? <laughs> just imagine it. <laughs> possibly won't, not, not in our lifetimes. <laughs> but very possibly. But, 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 but you, Bronwyn, in, the, in, your, in your address, sort of mentioned in passing some very profound problems in our tax system, in corporation tax, property taxes, and you, Amy, have just raised exactly this issue. That clearly is going to be on the agenda, on the other side of whatever settlement is, is reached on Brexit. Where do you think government is headed on the issue of tax? Bruno, I'll ask you and then turn to you, Amy. Um, it's tax, but also, it's, you know, it's also growth. The more growth you can get, um, the easier these, these problems uh, become to solve. In fact, the, the, the difficulty of getting productivity growth going, uh, some people would put down as the UK's you know, biggest problem at the moment. Um, and Brexit and chipping into that growth mm -hmm. simply complicates that. On tax, I think the pressure is very much for, uh, you know, for a rise in tax. But it's um, you know we're looking at that gap there that looks so mild on on, mm. the, on the screen, but it really isn't. That is painful, uh, billions of pounds. And just, just to emphasise it, that is simply trying to maintain the public services that we have now, particularly healthcare. Um, or some people joke, you know, we're going to look like a healthcare system with a, a country attached. Yeah. Um, it's you know it's expensive stuff. Um, can you use new technology to do it more cheaply? Well, a bit, but actually what it really does is make it better. It doesn't always make it cheaper. Uh, so, it, so I think you know, the pressure to raise more tax, but there is, a, there is a limit to that. And when you look at the opposition's plans to say, um, oh, we want to do much better public services as well, that would potentially be really quite eye-watering rises in the amount of tax because you're going to have to close that gap even before you start improving things. Uh, and Amy, can I just teach you out, because it's, it's easy to say we're going to have to have a grown-up conversation about tax, we're going to have to be long-term. Are you saying higher top rates? Are you saying wealth taxes? Are you saying different c consumption taxes? Where, where do you think this, this needs to sensibly and efficiently fall? Well, those are good words, uh, those last two words. Uh, there's no point in it falling in places where it's easy to avoid. Right. Okay. So you need to go to the places, if you actually want a money shot in tax, you generally go for something which is based on turnover or employment, correct? I don't see, so the idea that there's something where, you know, people have got expensive tax advisors, which I used to be one of many years ago, uh, are, and, and are good at uh, keeping their liabilities down or putting them offshore or something of that sort, it's difficult to make, to really uh, get payback from, from, from raising ta top rates of tax. Mm -hmm. So I think you're forced into what works to quite a degree. Which means? Well, I think it, I think it probably means it'll mean VAT, it'll mean things of that sort. Okay. It's where the money is. No, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, I was going to say it's a popular tax. It's a, it's a popular tax in Whitehall. Oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we'd love to hear thoughts, questions. Would you just uh, let us know who you are and, um, uh, and we'll try and get through as many uh, questions or observations as possible. I'm in a happy position, I've got to host more. Sir. Thank you. Adrian Brown from Centre for Public Impact. One of the themes that perhaps runs through uh, your excellent <coughs> comments, Bronwyn, is uh, trust. 
and a breakdown of trust, arguably, between many different parts of society, but particularly in this context between citizens and the state. I'd be interested in your comments on whether Brexit and the, the implications that has for people's trust is potentially undermining some of the other things about tax raising and public services, for example. I, uh, I, I think it's something that's been building for some time. I think Brexit is more an expression of it than a contributor to it. Though obviously a resolution of Brexit will help people's faith that government can, can solve some of these things. But it's got a lot of causes, I think, as, 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 as we know and as your uh, organisation does, does, does some work on. Um, and it's also part of the times we're in, people being more sceptical, more individual, part of this loss of power of governments that... Um, that we read about. So, uh, I mean, I think government showing that it can work well and can fix some of the main problems, of which Brexit is just one, goes some way to help. There's a, there's a gentleman at the back, if you'd pass the mic. Just on that, Brian, then I'll come to you, sir. There's just one point on that. The, the gentleman there with the green glasses. Have you got, oh, you've got a microphone. Right. Sorry. Uh, David Walker, Guardian Public. Uh, Bronwyn used the phrase reinforce belief in government. Now, that's surely an ideological red line for lots of people on either side. Uh, David Sainsbury coined the phrase, progressive politicians persuade people of the importance of competent and active government. Now, if that's a mission statement for the IFG, in some sense that puts you on the side of those who believe in the state, believe in the state's capacity, believe in the activity of government, makes you, may, may I say it, somewhat like social democrats. Um, I'll just observe, if I may, in passing, that the proprietor for whom you uh, and James and I used to work, Rupert Murdoch, is among those who don't believe in active and competent government. So I'm, what I'm asking is whether you agree that the IFG, excellent work that it does, is necessarily on one side of an important political stroke ideological divide. Thank you, as they say. <laughs> Uh, th no, I don't agree. I, I mean, you've put in it beautifully, in the most possible political terms, um, you know, you know, polarised views about the state, but something that we don't find political at all. We believe in making government work better. We're not in any way saying how big that government should be. Now, I guess we're starting from the position that it should exist in some, at some uh, size at all, hence my uh, remarks about the US federal government. Um, but beyond saying... Uh, that that, uh, that government is um, you know, uh, you know, does perform some crucial functions for our country. We're saying nothing whatsoever about how big that should be or exactly what form that takes. But then we are saying we are saying plenty about about how it should do it. Because, so can you say your name, sorry, Bonnie Soane's Women's Parliamentary Radio, but I've reported for the BBC on public yeah. services for some time, including a local government correspondent for the BBC in the Eastern Region when public services were being cut in the 80s and 90s. And it's no surprise that there's a housing crisis now if you live through that. But at what point does it become dishonest to make a presentation like yours? Because it's managerial. It's looking at the civil service managing an economy, but not looking at what type of economy we want to live within, with, i.e. do we want better public services and to get public services then, to repeat what David says, we have to have higher taxation. And if Brexit is going to mean a huge drop in the wealth of the UK economy, doesn't it require somebody 
to be honest and own up to the fact that you're not going to meet your targets because, in fact, you won't have the money to deliver public services. So, um, Bron, before yeah. we want to, I'm going to ask this gentleman to add his hand up so you can take two at a time, if you would. Hi, David Halpern. Um, one of the things that um, one can at least say for certain kinds of shocks is they lead to improvements. You know, a local authority having to struggle with really quite difficult funding budgets, you can argue, has genuinely actually made it be innovative and more efficient in some ways, even though it's had a struggle, or even wars, right, lead to Haldane and writing our notes down or whatever in government. It's not so obvious what are the benefits that have resulted from this shock. And I wonder if you see any at all. In fact, if you were really cynical, you might say, even some of the underlying issues that drove it originally, so some welfare reform issues or some issues to do with handling of immigration or kind of a long list of what they might be, it's not obvious, even some of the institutional matters you might say around the gap between the plebiscite, have they been made better? Like, Sorry, I didn't hear what was that, that the shock. So have the they been, the, the, the shock, shock, you know, normally there's an argument, does shocks in some way lead to adaption which is positive shocks in generally. some way? Yeah, yes. in, yes. including yeah, institutions right. and governments. Yeah. Like, do you see that there are some that have emerged in this case? It's not completely obvious. I'm saying even if you go back to some of the origins of Brexit, it's not clear that some of those have even, those principal concerns have been addressed. Mm. Yeah. So benefits of the shock and Bonnie's question about, if you like, the bill of the shock. Yeah, the, the bill of the shock. Uh, Bonnie, it's, a, it's an interesting question. No, look, we, we, we set out to say what, in our view, government can do and can't do. And uh, it is the things that you're describing are, I mean, in the, in the best sense of the word, political decisions about what people want, what public services they choose as a country to have, uh, which can be very different between different countries and different you know, people in the same country at different times. Um, and that is what our elections properly test, and they put in governments um, who promise a vision and, and then set out a plan to make it. And we can comment to an extent uh, on whether uh, we think those plans make sense, but what we really comment on is how do you get to that destination? And there's all kinds of different destinations out there. How do, how do you actually do it? Um, it's one thing to go on the campaign trail and say this is this is our vision. This is what we're going to do. How do you do it? Um, and that you know that that, that that is what we're setting out to do. And that is um, you know it, it's a skill that people aren't born with, if I can put it that way. It's a skill that we think can be acquired. It's, it's uh, it, it is something that talking about these kind of things, debating them, absolutely uh, sheds light on. Um, but some of the, it's not an answer to the things that uh, you were describing at the beginning of your question, which can only be answered by the result of an election of the expression of what people want. On the other one, um, what does a shock uh, deliver? Um, and you're asking specifically about the benefits of it. Um, and I, I mean, I'd mind as you were talking, I mean, the, the, the uh, performance tracker work that we did which showed actually just quite a lot of change very rapidly um, that Whitehall and local government managed to bring around in, after the 2010 financial crisis. Yeah. Changing, yes, uh, making things more efficient, but it went well beyond that kind of bloodless thing into actually th rethinking very fast how a lot of government was done. So sometimes these things can produce um, Change Brexit, as I said before, has thrown people together, and you know some of that has been creative and moving, um, um, albeit at a, at a cost, as I was describing. But the disruption—you'd have to have quite a degree of, of, of stuckness, of stagnation, for shocks to be uh, altogether good.
and uh, we're aware of the negative bits of them. Can we, can we've, got, we've got quite a muscular gang in the room, and I know we're just coming towards the end of time, but I'd love to just take three questions if I can. Madam at the back, sir, and then you, madam. So. Do you mean the man at the back or me? Madam, I said. Oh, yes. oh I see. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Thank you. Vicky Price, former joint head of the Government Economic Service. Uh, it's interesting what we said about the Treasury and its importance, significance, and power, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but uh, Emirs may have a, a, a view, and, and Bronwyn. Um, the Treasury seems to do a lot of things without anyone actually checking what they do. Uh, and it is the one department which isn't subjected to proper cost-benefit analysis, and that's a real worry. And the second thing I worry about is, is the civil servants who are there now in their increasing numbers again. But we do know, as we've just heard as well, that a lot of their, of their uh, evidence is ignored uh, or is considered to be, I mean, publicly by David Davis, for example, who just didn't believe anything the economists were, were putting together. So I worry about what may happen next and whether we're actually another of the results of the crisis we've got at present so we're actually going to have a slightly demoralized civil service. I mean, after all, they did work hard to get this agreement. Mm -hmm. This agreement has been voted down and considered to be ridiculous. So, I mean, what do they all feel right now? So, Oh, I see, Madam. Follow, come to you and then I'll see you. Miranda Curtis, I'm a trustee here at the Institute and also lead non-exec at the Foreign Office. I wanted to pick up on uh, your comments about the prospect of the spending review. Um, and it's very clear as we look at government preparations for the spending review that one of the perennial problems is the historical um, structural barriers to planning for effective expenditure. Each government department has a separate budget and there is absolutely nothing in the system that in any way encourages or incents either sharing of budget or resources. Mark Sedwell is saying that um, as he approaches this spending review, um, he does want to encourage some broad cross-departmental um, thematic work on key issues such as immigration, childhood obesity, and indeed um, Britain's future presence overseas. How confident do you think we should be that they might actually be able to make some changes to the guidelines in the spending review? And then my second point is just on your civil service question and career planning. And I think that one of the issues um, that's very often forgotten is not only the loss of efficiency in having such rapid rotation, but also the loss of opportunities for professional satisfaction mm -hmm. and actually being able to see a, a project through from start to finish. Nick, yeah. Nick going from the Thinking the Unthinkable project. Let me just pick up on both those points, and particularly Vicky's, about about the damage and the scars that are now left inside public service because of what is happening um, and whether this is really um, irreversible damage that's been done. You know what happens to those who go to war. They come back often very damaged both physically and mentally and this is about challenging their ability, their professional abilities. I'm, I'm wondering whether you think actually the public service can bounce back. Um, it's difficult to know what the solution is going to be for Brexit, but on the other hand, government still has to continue and people still have to want to go to work. Um, can we do this if it's all right? Amos, would you take on Vicky's question about oversight of the Treasury and, and Miranda's point about the spending review and coordination across departments? And yes. Bronwyn, I'll post you, you know, Nick and Vicky's point about uh, morale and Brexit, Brexit PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, okay, good coordination. Um, on on the, the, uh, the, the Treasury, I think there's a very fair question to say when a, spending, a Treasury spending team makes a decision that they're going to favour 
spending limits over value for money, I'd like that to be accountable. It's not a sovereign truth that it's always right to protect the spending uh, limits. And I, I just don't see that as a self-evident truth. And I, I tried to bring that out in, in our recent report. I, so I, I agree with the spirit of the, uh, uh, of the question. I think the Treasury could be more accountable for how it exercises its power in these circumstances. And if it did so, it would actually be more influential, strangely enough, as well. Uh, so that's my comment on that. What was the and other then one? Was on the departmental coordination, so okay. cross-departmental coordination. I think we're moving in the right direction in some areas. It, there's, where there are real systems that are inter interdependent, that's where there should be shared budgets. And the most important one of those, of course, is health interacting with social care and therefore the health budget interacting with the local government budget. That needs to work and it needs to be seen as a unity. And I'm actually fairly optimistic about the, the, the fact that that is moving in that direction. So I think there is, at least it's on the agenda, it's recognized, it's been talked about by leaders in that area for quite some time. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Probably. Brexit morale. Um, look, it, it, it's not over yet. Um, the civil services work very hard on a deal. Uh, that deal may yet in some form survive and it's, it comes out of the very nature of what they have had to do of preparing for different worlds that not all those worlds are going to come true. They've been working on no deal, uh, hoping, uh, many of them, um, that no deal would not, not come off, uh, but feeling it foolish uh, um, not to prepare for it and uh, working on you know, many, many different versions of this. So I, you know, I think it's... Um, no, I wouldn't say that they're all uh, traumatised by this at all. Um, you've seen some, you know, fiercely bright people throw themselves into this, very, very committed. Uh, if you had to pick one word that wasn't positive, it'd probably be exhausted. Um, and certainly before Christmas, you heard that a lot. But I, no, I, I think it's, it's brought out many, many positive things from the civil service, um, including a kind of commitment and energy. Thank you. On that morale-boosting note, um, thank you. Please join me uh, in thanking Sir Amos Morse and, of course, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, James, and come and have a drink. <laughs> so you're not pleased with the thought of increasing VAT.